Welcome to Circle Sanctuary Network Podcast, brought to you by Circle Sanctuary, one of the oldest nature spirituality churches in the United States, connecting people of nature-centered paths around the world. Join us through the week for a variety of shows discussing various topics, celebrating the divine in all of its forms, through nature worship, rituals, education, and building bridges of community. Hello, and welcome to another edition of Blue Marble Podcast, where I talk about ways to put your green faith into action and to manifest good magic for the planet. I'm your host, Reverend Charbert with Circle Sanctuary, Green Faith, and the Climate Reality Project. I sure hope this podcast continues to educate and to motivate. So this time, I'm focusing on the future of food. Okay, who doesn't love food? I love food. I mean, food is so central to everything. There's, I mean, Noom, if you've used the Noom app, they talk about different kinds of food, like there's food for nutrition and there's food for pleasure. And then of course they talk about just mindless eating, food for distraction, and that can be problematic. But I mean, food is so central to everything. I, I, every time I ask somebody about their culture, for example, they will talk about different traditions and so many of those involve food or feasts or festivals, table fellowship and fellowship always around food, families gathering around the table, the idea of the kitchen, the hearth being the center of the home and food being so instrumental to our social connections and our connection with the earth and the planet as well. Sounds nice, but I ask you, I mean, reflect with me a moment. What did you eat today? Did you drink a glass of water? And do you know where your food and water came from and how it got to your table? I mean, think about it. What is the source of the food you ate? How was this food planted? How was it grown? If not planted, was it wild? Was it foraged? What is the food made of in its most natural form? What is the sun content of the food, the moon content, the rain content, the soil content, the flesh, muscle, gristle, fat, skin content? Who gathered and prepared this food for you? How was it processed? Where did it come from? Who prepared it and served it to you before you sat down to eat it? And what will its nutritional benefits be for your body, mind, and spirit? Do we even know? I mean, for many of us, the origins of our food and water have become a mystery. We are far removed from the cultures that had feasts and festivities harvested from the earth, brought from the wilds of the earth, brought to the table, where the very preparation of every aspect of giving and sharing this food was shared, was a bonding experience, was a cultural experience. We've come far from that, especially in a society that lives on convenience foods and very often fast foods. So, you know, we don't understand necessarily how food is grown or the impact of chemical industrial farming on our drinking water. I mean, that's challenging for us to even find out about. So as a spiritual practice, it's a very strong suggestion that we all become mindful about what it is exactly we are putting on our plates and into our mouths and stomachs. Now, food on the macro scale involves more than just what we put in our mouths. It involves food systems that are affected by climate change, that are affected by petrochemicals. Some of the things which are good around better inclusivity and diversity regarding those things, but some are not, a whole lot are not. And it involves also crazy innovations that are going on right now. So keeping it real here, when you are looking at feeding 9 billion homo sapiens on the planet and counting, how is this planet supposed to sustain that? But it's not just about a choice between eating beef or bugs or tofu. It's part of a whole big picture. And when you break it all down, well, it's kind of a wild, wild food west out there. So let's get to it. 
In July 2022, there was a documentary on CNN's special report called Eating Planet Earth, The Future of Your Food. It uh, featured CNN anchor and chief climate correspondent Bill Weir. I recommend it highly. It examines the cutting edge science and market forces changing our diets as we speak. From California to the Gulf of Maine to Yellowstone National Park, the documentary follows Weir as he meets with innovative cattle ranchers and kelp farmers, scientists, lobstermen, a best-selling author who suggests that eliminating meat from the breakfast and lunch table could be a massive first step to healing our bodies and our planet. So the documentary narrative states, everything we consume in our diet comes with a cost not often reflected in the price we pay at the grocery store. And according to science, the food that costs more land, more water, more pollution than any other comes from the humble cow. So if cows were a country, they would rank as the third largest polluter of greenhouse gases, the planet heating kind of pollution. And as a result, some of the smartest and wealthiest people in the world are trying to disrupt the big business of big meat. Vegan and flexitarian diets are gaining in popularity as celebrities swear off consuming red meat in growing numbers and evangelize the benefits for health and wellness. So could the dinner of the future include lab-grown porterhouse steaks or earth-friendly surf and turf? Yes, that's what the documentary proposes and goes on to explain, plus a whole bunch of other stuff. So again, CNN special report, Eating Planet Earth, the Future of Your Food. It aired uh, July 23rd, either last year or the year before. So if we're going to talk food, we have to talk about farming and farming practices. A good um, watch group is the Environmental Working Group, and it has a part of its mission, the job of reimagining the way our food goes from farm to table, because the way we produce food influences our health, quality of life, and our environment. So in considering climate and agriculture, Environmental Working Group says this, the science is clear. If we don't reduce greenhouse gas emissions from food and farming, we can't avoid the worst impacts of climate change. The Economic Working Group is one organization that is changing diets and changing policies to reduce the carbon footprint of our food. They basically translate climate science so us customers out here can understand the impact of our choices. And they also advocate for reforming farm programs to help farmers reduce greenhouse gas emissions and withstand the extreme weather that's being caused by climate change. And we see it all the time now. Because even if we stopped burning fossil fuels today, even if we stopped entirely burning fossil fuels today, greenhouse gas emissions from food and farming could make a climate catastrophe unavoidable. So it's a very big part very big part of the climate crisis. At least that's the conclusion of a team of experts in food, climate science, agriculture, and sustainability from the University of Oxford, Stanford University, and the University of Minnesota. This team of scientists concluded that expected increases in agricultural greenhouse gas emissions, especially those caused by clearing and fertilizing land to grow crops and those generated by farm animals and their manure, all of that together make it unlikely we will be able to keep global warming below the two degrees Celsius. And you might, you might remember that 1.5 degrees Celsius is the threshold scientists have determined will help us avoid the worst effects of climate change. So that was the international goal set by the Paris Agreement in 2015. And keeping it real here, even as the transportation and energy emissions that contribute to the climate crisis are going down, emissions from agriculture are increasing. Plowing up grasslands, burning forests to cultivate the land for agriculture, all of that unlocks carbon from the soil. And when you unlock carbon from the soil in those quantities, it sends all of that up into the atmosphere as carbon dioxide. Fertilizing the crops in massive farms uh, the, and, and in the, the massive farms we, um, in which we grow for animal feed, the ethanol produces nitric, nitrous oxide, and that's a greenhouse gas that's 300 times more powerful than carbon dioxide. Farm animals eat this feed 
and they produce manure, they shit, and they generate methane emissions. Methane is really powerful. I mean, cows produce methane. That is 80 times more powerful than carbon dioxide in the first 20 years after it reaches the atmosphere. It doesn't live as long, but it's a whopper at first, the first 20 years. So the Environmental Protection Agency estimates that U.S. agriculture accounts for about 10% of our greenhouse gas emissions. But after we factor in the emissions from fertilizer production, as well as emissions from land clearing and from plowing, it becomes clear that agriculture's share of emissions is even higher. And by 2050, with more people and equal demands for animal protein, the greenhouse gas emissions from animals and the production of their feed could easily account for one third of US emissions. Well, one part of the solution, according to the team of experts I mentioned, is better management of fertilizer and animal feed. So it's good news that the Build Back Better bill, which was passed by the House of Representatives in April, 2023, provides $27 billion in incentives for farmers to adopt practices that reduce emissions. And that bill right now in May, 2023, is under attack by House GOP members, Republicans who are trying to repeal it as part of the debt ceiling drama that's going on. But simply providing farmers with more financial incentives to try reducing their greenhouse gas emissions won't be enough. The experts conclude that instead we must pursue a combination of activities. It makes sense. We need to, we need to be reducing greenhouse gas emissions, but we also need to be eating more plant-based foods. We need to be rethinking how we raise farm animals. We need to be increasing crop yields, doing regenerative farming. We need to be reducing food waste and using fertilizer more carefully. So all of these uh, acts together is a combined, you know, a complex of solutions. And the facts are in inescapable. If global protein demands double, as some predict, and most of that demand is met by animals raised here and abroad, the incentives alone will do little to change the upward climb of emissions linked to meat from industrialized farms or what we call factory farms. Beef and dairy cows already produce 44% of the world's methane emissions. Beef and dairy cows alone produce 44% of the world's methane emissions. Remember, that's the one that uh, packs a wall up in the atmosphere to, for 20 years. And even if it takes less feed to produce the same amount of cows, pigs, sheep, goats, chickens, turkeys, and other livestock, raising and feeding more animals will more than offset any gains we make in reducing emissions elsewhere. So the good news is that demand for alternative proteins is growing, especially among consumers who have not been vegetarians or vegans before who don't like the idea of having to be vegetarian and vegan. It's, it's about moving away from industrialized animal farming, industrialized farming. And more meat eaters are occasionally now choosing fish and plant proteins, which can help cut those emissions. Experts tell us if enough people change their diets to reflect more of a Mediterranean diet or a planet healthy diet, we can still meet our climate goals. And the Mediterranean diet they're talking about here is one that is heavily based on whole grains, abundant fresh fruits, vegetables, very moderate, moderate amounts of cheese, tiny bits of meat, um, might be some eggs, but nuts and seeds. So it's, uh, yeah, exactly. You can look up uh, Dr. Andrew Weil, and he really describes the Mediterranean diet well. Um, but experts also say time is of the essence, because when it comes to addressing food and farm emissions, any delay will require future actions to be even more am ambitious and, well, frankly, drastic at this point. So tackling the animal farming industry is climate science, it's climate activism, and also climate eco-justice. I mean, think about it. Lax regulations have allowed an explosion of factory farms with their stench, their pollution, their threats to human health. These mega farms, they're massive little shops of horror for the animals who live their lives in unspeakable misery and for the workers as well as for the residents who live around them. 
I mean, these factory farms are often in areas with predominantly Black, Latino, Native American populations, low-income communities. They're raising thousands of livestock in close confinement, and that requires huge open pits of manure, urine, other waste. So people living nearby, they can become overwhelmed by the stench. They may suffer from respiratory problems, have a greater risk of death from serious disease. In the North Carolinas, just as one example, there were three counties, predominantly Black, Native American, Latino demographics were already there. And the, these three counties were home to most of the state's industrial hog operations. There were enormous hog operations already there. And then the industry brought in enormous industrial poultry operations on top of that. The people didn't have much say about it. So the Environmental Working Group found that the chickens and turkeys alone produced over 5 million tons of waste a year in over 4,800 factory farms in those three counties. And that was in addition to the already 8.7 million hogs that were generating 9.2 billion gallons of liquefied waste and sludge a year in the so-called anaerobic waste lagoons, which are often nothing more than unlined pits of liquid manure and urine. And that's the primary waste treatment. So, I mean, it's just, it's just gross, 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 horror, horror, horror. And we eat the byproducts of that when we buy those meat products. So industrialized animal mega farms are wrong for every kind of reason. Keeping it real. We got to call out greenwashing for what it is. It's a bunch of horse crap to tell you the truth. The whole idea of fresh farm to table is hogwash if you are sourcing your food from an industrial farm, right? That's because industrial farming depends on huge amounts of chemical fertilizer and manure with nitrate and other harmful chemicals that run off fields, that runs off into the rivers and lakes. So nitrate can trigger potentially toxic algae blooms in bodies of water. That makes them unsafe for recreation. They're certainly unsafe as sources of drinking water. So no matter how much the producer wants to put pictures of happy dancing cows on the carton or smiling clucking chickens on the egg packaging, it's a sham. With industrial farming, again, animals endure unspeakable suffering from the moment they're born until they die. And when, they're, when we are sold to eat the flesh that has endured all that suffering in the squalor, Think about it. Is that a healthy idea? In native traditions and earth-based traditions, people are encouraged to respect the spirit of the animal and the plant. But when the animal is a tortured commodity and worse, raised in a big, you know, industrialized farm, is that the spirit we want to be consuming? The idea, it's absolute sacrilege to me. Also, with industrialized animal farms, the drinking water becomes contaminated with the toxic chemicals I mentioned, and that can cause serious health harm. I mean, I work in, I work in healthcare, so I have, to, I have to add this. I mean, nitrogen and phosphorus in manure and commercial fertilizer are essential crop nutrients, but they can contaminate drinking water sources when they leach into the groundwater, when they run off the farms into the fields. Uh, and beyond. So a new investigation by the Environmental Working Group and the Midwest Environmental Advocates found that in nine Wisconsin counties, this is a case study, nine counties in Wisconsin, the commercial fertilizer and animal manure are overapplied to farmland at rates that are causing a water pollution crisis in rural, rural Wisconsin. And that's just one case study. And the contaminants don't affect only the farming boundaries or lands around them. The unsightly, smelly, dangerous algae blooms occur in the local bodies of water, harming fish, pets, people, creating dead zones along the coastlines where the effluent from the farming practices run into the oceans. And of course, food and farm workers live and work in those conditions conditions that expose them constantly to pesticides, other toxic chemicals, dirty air, contaminated drinking water, awful manure, inadequate health care, terrible sewage. This exposure leaves them especially vulnerable to disease. They had little to no protection from the coronavirus pandemic. So nothing about this scenario 
when we actually look at it, is sustainable or moral. Frankly, the industry is counting on us customers of food products to be happily duped, to be numbed, or simply not interested in knowing where our food comes from or how it comes to us. They bank on our mindless eating because if or when we do stop to think about it, A, what we put into our bodies for nourishment, and B, what are the actual consequences of our choices for animals, human and non-human, and the planet, then we would insist upon drastically changing farming practices. What's to be done? How can these food systems be transformed for the benefit of humans, animals, and the planet? Conservation, that's something that's talked about a lot. And the USDA's conservation programs are the single largest investment of federal taxpayer dollars to encourage farmers to adopt practices that improve natural resources and the environment. But the Environmental Working Group's analysis of USDA spending found that considerable funding goes to practices that do not in fact benefit the environment. They are anti-climate mitigation. In 2019 and 2020 combined, more than $222 million in funds were used to upgrade irrigation pipelines and sprinklers. And almost 102 million funded animal waste storage facilities. These are practices that do not reduce greenhouse gases. And in the case of water storage facilities, they actually produce emissions. So farming practices that do help the planet, and if you are involved in farming at all or know people in agriculture or live in an agricultural area, these are things to really advocate for through any community organization or through your own um, uh, advocacy with your representatives, with um, community uh, stakeholders, you know, to really help them understand that these are truly beneficial farming practices that will help animals, people, and the planet. One. Alley cropping. Alley cropping is when you plant trees or shrubs in sets of rows with crops or forages produced between the, the woody plants. So producers who practice alley cropping, uh, they can sequester carbon better in, these, in the perennial biomass and soils, while at the same time delivering improved crop or forage quality. And it reduces wind and water erosion. It improves water quality and it builds soil health. So alley cropping. Second one, conservation cover. Conservation cover is a permanent vegetative cover. Plants that produce high volumes of organic matter are recommended when this practice is applied because it sequesters carbon way better. It builds soil health. Producers who plant conservation cover may improve water quality, they strengthen wildlife or pollinator habitat. So alley cropping, conservation cover. Third, conservation crop rotation. Conservation crop rotation. That's when you grow crops in a planned sequence on the same field over time. So you're not doing monoculture plantations, you're growing crops in a planned sequence. You're using the same field, but rotating crops. So producers who rotate crops, they sequester carbon well. They build soil health. They reduce plant pest pressures. They provide feed or forage for livestock and they improve water quality. So alley cropping, conservation cover, conservation crop rotation. The fourth one, meat and dairy alternatives meat and dairy alternatives, plant-based proteins, planting them and getting ready to grow them. So agricultural practices that really, really make a difference. Alley cropping, conservation cover, conservation crop rotation, developing meat and dairy alternatives so that we don't have to house large industrialized farms for cows, for dairy, for beef. Same goes for pigs. It's also just huge and poultry, it's, it's disgusting and horrific and stopping these large animal agricultural operations. So on that note, 
shifting gears here, the whole discussion around meat and dairy alternatives. Um, and I'm, I'm not advocating anything here. I'm, I'm sharing information, so hear that. Uh, but plant-based proteins have been scientifically proven over time now to be healthier and they produce fewer greenhouse gases and require less land. The new language now is not plant-based, but plant-forward, a plant-forward diet. I love it. I'm eating a plant-forward diet and loosely defined. That's a diet that is rich in plant foods, but that can also be flexible. It can include eggs, some dairy foods, occasionally lean meat, a little poultry, seafood. So that's kind of the Mediterranean diet in concept, but heavily rich in plant-based foods, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, nuts, seeds. And the definition of a whole foods plant-forward diet can include a flexitarian diet, a pescatarian diet, lacto-ovo-vegetarian, a lacto-vegetarian, an ovo-vegetarian, or a vegan diet. Uh, vegan, of course, is more of a stance than a diet. Veganism is a moral stance against exploiting or using animals for anything. Um, but it has, so it's not just associated with eating. Now, the Global Alliance for the Future of Food focuses on transforming food systems for the sake of food security, for the sake of our health through food, and for the sake of health of the natural world upon which we feed. And their message, they say this, they say, quote, we are facing a breakdown of critical systems on multiple fronts. The pandemic, climate change, rising hunger, each of these challenges is tied to fragile food systems that degrade the environment and undermine public health. But it doesn't have to be this way. Food systems transformation can provide brilliant pathways to a better future, unquote. So they focus on seven principles of food system transformation. And this is being discussed a lot um, in, in you know, national, international spheres, as well as scientific. So um, food systems transformation, they focus on renewability, on resilience, on equity, diversity, on healthfulness, inclusion, and interconnectedness. I tell you, the more you get into the climate movement and look at all the different aspects of this, the more intersectional you realize this is because it is not a partisan issue. It's not a one country issue or a one-off issue. This is an existential issue about our relationship as a species to the planet upon which we depend. So um, Global Food Alliance, they published a major report last year in 2022 about untapped opportunities. And they were really addressing uh, climate financing for, for transforming food systems. And there are just a couple of things I wanted to highlight. I thought they caught my eye because uh, in the report, um, they acknowledged that food systems are responsible for about 33% of all greenhouse gas emissions. Yet in America, only 3% of public funding in the US of any kind is directed to food systems. So that's 22 times less than the amount of public money directed to the energy and transportation sectors. A lot of Americans don't realize our tax dollars are subsidizing fossil fuel companies, which are you know, making billions of dollars in profits, but only 3% of our public funding in the US currently is directed to food systems, transforming them for our benefit. That's a point of policy that needs to change. And as of last year, the US spent $528 billion of public money, yours or mine, on agricultural practices that actually had harmful impacts on the environment and hurt the climate. And by comparison, we need 300 to 350 billion to implement actions that can transform food systems. So here, here, you know, we spent 580 billion to keep polluting the planet, the atmosphere and our bodies against the 300 to 350 billion dollars to transform our food systems so that we're not polluting the planet and we are improving human health. 
I mean, you want to talk about reducing the debt ceiling. How about reducing the amount of money we spend on agriculture by, oh, you know, 150 to 200 billion. That's the difference between those numbers. Reducing it by 150 to 200 billion to move big food and farming in the right direction. Gee, I wonder what barriers to that are. A big area of inspiration for me is food sovereignty. And this is, you know, off the government grid entirely. So often uh, it's people who identify as women of color leading the way, such as in the U.S. island territories, in the mainland indigenous communities who are working to grow local food systems. In a lot of agricultural um, cultures, uh, it has traditionally been women who grow the food and procure the food. And so they're leading the way in places like the Virgin Islands, U.S. Virgin Islands, Guam, Puerto Rico, just some examples where women are driving projects that are prioritizing and reclaiming local food production. More direct farm to table, more regenerative farming, more food as central to community, more deeper connection to the food we grow and eat, more eldering the next generation in how to reclaim traditional foods over commercial foods and junk foods, more fighting the battle against food deserts as a result of colonization and urbanization. Very cool stuff going on, really inspiring. And if you want to learn more about that, one place you can look at is uh, 19th News. Just go to www. 19thnews, 19thnews.org, and search for Women Locally Grown Food Sovereignty. And 19 News is a, an independent nonprofit newsroom reporting on gender politics and policy. So now let's talk about what could be on the menu by 2050. Yeah. What do scientists figure we will be eating in an age of climate change and global warming? Well, right now, there are about 15 crops that comprise 90% of the calories we humans eat from the staple foods people eat around the world. 15 crops that comprise 90% of the calories we eat as a species, as the staple foods people eat around the world. And these crops are beginning to go through food shocks as a result of a warming planet brought on by rapid rises in greenhouse gas emissions. And I don't mean that everybody's eating these 15 foods in their pure form. They're, they're kind of like the foundational ingredient in so many things. You can probably name them right now. Um, if you've ever been on any kind of nutrition program where you had to start marking down and, and noticing, you know, sugar and everything or palm oil and everything or, um, you know, refined flour and everything or corn. I mean, it's just shocking how you can't get away from some of these 15 crops. Um, that are monocultured in plantations around the world. So um, if those crops are disrupted, what would we be eating? In 2022 and 2023, we've experienced up close and personal the impact of supply chains when they get disrupted. It was a, it's been a big issue in inflation. And you know how much that throws entire communities, heck, countries into chaos. The COVID pandemic also has been teaching us a lot about how climate change causes an awful lot of disruption to supply chains and food supplies. Food scarcity is scary and it's corrosive. And one of the solutions is really diversifying the crops we grow in the foods we eat. Who wrote the book that it's got to be the same 15 crops? Let's diversify the crops we grow in the foods we eat. We depend right now on corn, soy, wheat, sugar, palm, and rice for so much of the world's foods. And a lot of that's driven by big food or con ag. And that's so much of the world's foods, either in pure form, but more commonly as key ingredients in all processed food. These crops have served to clear vast areas of forest habitat to make way for monocultural plantations. Other foods like um, chicken, poultry, and beef, just vast areas cleared away. And instead, instead of that, we can diversify. We may see more foods being produced from crops like pandanas or false bananas or different wild grains 
and diverse beans. I mean, these can be consumed as whole foods in their pure form or as key ingredients in an array of new plant-based foods that provide both nutrition and pleasure. Because man, don't take my food for pleasure. Mm. So like the pandanus, who knew? Well, some people did, I didn't, but it's a tree that can tolerate challenging conditions, including drought, strong winds, salt spray. What's not to love about that? It's climate resilient and the nutritious food is supposedly delicious. Maybe you've eaten some, I can't wait to try it. Um, so it'd be really great to diversify the food port portfolio to include food that's culturally appropriate, that's nutritious, and that can be grown in challenging conditions all around the world. So the pandanus is one of them. Um, it can be used sustainably without depleting resources for the local people who grow it. Um, another food, beans or legumes. I can't praise beans and legumes enough. You're going to get tired of hearing me do it. But I mean, they really are little miracle wonders. And they are another food for the future. They're cheap. They're high in proteins and B vitamins. And they're adapted to a wide range of environments from ocean shores to mountain slopes. There are 20,000 species of legumes in the world, not all split peas, guys, 20,000 species, but we only use a handful. So it's thought there are hundreds in the wild as yet unknown to scientists. Like beans, wild cereals, which come from grasses, also have huge diversity with more than 10,000 species, offering lots of potential for new foods. For example, uh, fonio is a wild cereal. It's a nutritious African cereal used to make couscous, porridge, and drinks. When it's cultivated locally as a crop, the plant can tolerate very dry conditions. Uh, or NSET, the false banana it's called. Uh, that's a close relative of the banana but is consumed only in one part of Ethiopia right now. And the banana-like fruit of the plant is not edible, but the starchy stems and roots can be fermented and used to make porridge and bread. So studies suggest that this false banana crop has the potential to feed more than 100 million people in a warming world. That's just one, this, this uh, I, again, um, NSET or false banana, this one future food, which is currently only in Ethiopia, if, if cultivated, it can feed more than 100 million people in a warming planet. I mean, so go plants, right? They are the base of the food chain for every land dwelling animal. Um, get to know them better. Rolling Stone magazine published in April 2023, their best guess at the five kinds of foods that are coming down the pike right now, or shall I say the five categories of food. Um, and I love this. It, it helps me think about food. They, they talk about regenerative foods, nostalgic foods, technology advanced foods, cultivated meat products, and plant-based meat-free whole cut foods. So these are the trends that are taking off and they are rocket launching. So regenerative foods refers to organic foods grown with zero net carbon footprint and using regenerative farming practices. Now, keeping it real, there's a lot of greenwashing in this emerging industry and watchdogs are making sure the so-called regenerative branding is legit, kind of like what happened with organic labeling. But with money flowing into the regenerative space and customer demand growing, the regenerative trend does not appear to be going anywhere. Nostalgia branding, nostalgic foods, is different than reverting to foods we all used to eat before anyone was aware that climate change is a thing. Nostalgic branding is used by newer plant-based products usually that want to deliver the same warm and fuzzy feeling of the nostalgic foods you liked, but they're just using different ingredients. So like your mac and cheese, your burgers and shakes, your meatloaf and gravy, so forth. They can look and taste and feel very much the same as the original, but they're made for more climate-friendly and often body-friendly ingredients. Now, 2023 is a watershed year for the cultivated space, meaning meat that is cultivated in a lab. That's right. 
It is flesh. It's actual meat flesh, but it doesn't come from a slaughtered animal. It comes from cells from that animal that are then grown outside of the animal. So like in a Petri dish, same cells, same flesh, no slaughter, no misery, no mess, no climate change impact. And this is expected to debut in the US later this year. And some innovators are using the very same technology to tackle other big polluting crops and transform them into cultivated crops. And, and these include coffee, chocolate, and yes, caviar, which originally is fish eggs from like beluga or sturgeon. So cultivating flesh to eat and cultivating monocrops totally eliminates deforestation, greenhouse gas emissions, animal suffering, slave labor, almost invariably that are involved in the productions of these types of traditional familiar foods. Now, America has long sported the myth of being run on beef. Where's the beef? Beef, what's for dinner? Beef, beef, beef. In other words, cows. But in reality, America runs on chicken, not Duncan, on chicken, which accounts for more than 95% of meat production in the U.S., the poor, battered, caged bird. It was only a matter of time before meat-free whole cuts became the next best thing. Now, whole cuts of meat-looking and tasting food are overtaking the so-called meat industry. And it may not be too long before people are not able to distinguish between a plant-derived imitation of whole cuts of meat and the real slab of animal flesh. Oh no, you say, but really, for now, imitation burgers have made a huge headway, even on Fox News. And in a taste test with Glenn Beck, and with senators from beef producing states, the Impossible Burger convinced these folks that they were eating real beef burgers when they were certain they were not. So with a rapidly changing climate and a young progressive consumer base taking hold, there's no doubt that not only how we sell food, but what we sell as food is changing. It is changing. Forbes magazine in May 2022, one year ago, highlighted Chicago as being the leader in food and agricultural innovation. The old stockyards of the U.S. as featured in Upton Sinclair's The Jungle has now become the center for the nation's largest food and beverage manufacturing industry. In Chicago, food innovation startups in 2021 alone increased by 508%. And they generated $723 million in venture capital alone. That was two years ago. Chicago now has 2,800 food innovation companies and growing in its ecosystem. So what were some of the food innovations that were highlighted at last year's Chicago Venture Summit Future of Food Conference? It's kind of intriguing. One was aqua cultured foods which uses microbial fermentation. It developed the first whole muscle cut sushi quality seafood alternative. Their products are high in protein and fiber. They're free from the top 10 allergens. They're antibiotic free. They're vegan, meaning no animal products. They're non-GMO and have a fraction of the calories of traditional seafood, but they taste just like the original. And the company had developed formulas for tuna, whitefish, squid, and shrimp used in so many different kinds of cultural recipes. Think on how this would eliminate the crisis of overfishing. Nature's find, spelled F-Y-N-D, nature's find. That tapped in, into some um, breakthrough fermentation technology. This was in the CNN documentary too, and it was at the Chicago Future of Food Summit. Um, the company created FI, F-Y, that's their trademark. And, and what it is, is a, a, fun, a fungi-based nutritional protein. It comes from fungus. Uh, it comes from a microbe, actually, with um, origins in the geothermal springs of Yellowstone National Park. They went to the geothermal springs of Yellowstone National Park. They found 
this microbe within this fungus that lives there, they've got a small sample of it and they keep reproducing from the, these very small samples. So they're not going to the park and extracting a lot. They have a small amount that they keep recreating from. And Phi protein is made into products that are available at select grocery stores now. Nature's Find was awarded $4.7 million in grant funding from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation to expand their tech product for alternative protein in low to middle income countries. Big Food is also looking at artificial intelligence, uh, AI, to shape the future of food. Interesting thought. Um, I think of Star Trek, you know, um, <laughs> Earl Grey, hot, you know. <laughs> the replicator, but AI. Um, in April 2023, French dairy giant Belle Group entered into a partnership with Climax Foods, which is an AI-driven food startup, and the collaboration seeks to harness the power of artificial intelligence to develop plant-based alternatives to dairy products that will offer the same taste, the same mouthfeel, the same nutritional profile as the original animal-based counterparts. Wow, what a thing. No more moms and babies being separated. A similar collaboration in 2021 was when Kraft Heinz teamed up with Notco, and that's a company that uses AI to create plant-based milk, meats, cheese, and other alt protein products. Uh, Kraft Heinz CEO is Miguel Patricio, and he said the new joint venture is, quote, a critical step in the transformation of our product portfolio. We believe the technology that Notco brings is revolutionizing the creation of delicious plant-based foods with simpler ingredients. So the food innovation world has caught on to developing plant-derived food products that are nutritious and delicious and satisfy our personal palates and cultural tastes. And some of them on the market already are already starting to fool people and others say it doesn't take them long to adjust to them. And then after a while uh, in cooking with them, at least as ingredients um, becomes very familiar. The biggest challenge is in convincing people to transition. Yeah. And, and that gets into a whole different subject for another podcast, but okay. I can't, I can't leave this podcast without talking about the cringier end of the food spectrum. On the cringier end of the food spectrum are insects. The Guardian reported in May 2021, two years ago at the time of this original airing, that two billion people in the world already eat insects and the count is rising. Um, they reported that uh, fried crickets on the school menu milk made from fly larvae, maggots, and mealworm bolognese for dinner. Um, these are environmentally friendly meals we can look forward to, said The Guardian, and of course noted that this menu did not go down well with friends and family at all, even when well-hidden is tomato and oregano-flavored cracker bites. <laughs> Gag me. Now, some cultures historically have eaten freshly roasted insects, yes, and certainly many mammals and birds eat insects as a dietary staple. And certainly in a warming world, there will be many more insects. But the general notion has definitely not caught on. As many scientists insist though, if we wanna help save the planet, we are going to have to examine, try out and evaluate many different food sources than what we've been used to and the ones that survive well in a warming world that can withstand the pollutants we've put into our atmosphere, ground, and water. That includes bugs. Also two years ago in 2021, researchers at the University of Cambridge said our future global food supply cannot be safeguarded by traditional approaches to improving food production. It's not just about farming practices or transforming food systems. They said the research, they said that the global malnutrition could be eradicated by farming foods, including spirulina, chlorella, larvae of insects, such as a housefly, that means maggots, mycoprotein, which is protein derived from fungus, and macroalgae, such as sugar kelp. So these foods have already attracted interest as nutritious and more sustainable alternatives to traditional plant and animal-based foods. So, okay, 
there you have it. Here's the takeaway. Modern industrial agriculture, extracted capitalism, the profit motive, governments cowering before big food, and our own addiction to convenience foods and fast foods simply have got to stop. There is a better way. And indigenous communities working for food sovereignty are showing us that way. So that what is new is actually ancient and what is progressive is actually nostalgic or traditional. The future of food can be about reclaiming a respectful relationship with our food. So, folks, if you don't want to end up eating bugs, maggots, and algae three squares a day in the future, please pay attention to what's on your plate right now. That wraps up this installment of Blue Marble Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you value what you heard here today, please share this information with others. Share the link, send it out. New Blue Marble podcasts air live on the third Friday of every month and are available for listening anytime after they air through our channel on Blog Talk Radio. Go to www.blogtalkradio.com slash CSNP. Search for Blue Marble with Rev Bear, and you will find the archive of these podcasts. And this one's called The Future of Food. Click on any you want to hear or download for later listening. You can also follow our podcasts on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash CSN podcasts. And finally, you can find a complete archive of hundreds of programs by all of our excellent podcasters on the Circle Sanctuary website at www.circlesanctuary.org under the CSNP tab. If you remain, you'll hear a little bit more from someone to explain all that again. So until the next time, this is Char Bear signing off. Thank you for all the good you do. Stay true and blue. And hey, I hope to see you in the green space. Thank you for joining us on the Circle Sanctuary Network podcast presented by Circle Sanctuary and produced for all who follow nature-centered paths. Join us throughout the week for various programming connecting with the community around the world. Please don't forget to watch for updates on the Circle Sanctuary website at www.circlesanctuary.org. Follow us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash CSN podcasts. We can also be found on your favorite podcast hosting sites such as iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and others. Until next time, many blessings. <laughs>